Uh, as we're looking in John chapter 19, uh, we're seeing Jesus at the cross. And it would be inappropriate of me to, to, to drop down in these few verses here, beginning in verse 17, without reflecting on what we talked about last week. Last week we saw a few things about Jesus. We saw that he was the true and better king. Remember they mocked him on the cross, scoffing at him, saying, King of the Jews, ironically. They were saying that as a, as a slur. You false king. They even wrote it. We'll see that in our passage today where Pilate had it inscribed above him. King of the Jews. A name was inscribed above Jesus in, in, a, in jest, as a joke. But we know that this king will show that he is the true king when he returns. In Revelation chapter 19, he will come riding on a white horse and his name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, will be inscribed on his robe and on his side, the Bible says. We saw that Jesus is the true and better judge. Although Pilate sat on the Bema seat, the, the judgment seat, and stood in judgment of Jesus, we know that Jesus is the true and better king, and he will one day return to judge us and to judge the world. And then lastly, we saw that Jesus is the true and better lamb and the true and better Passover it's the true and better Passover lamb and the true and better scapegoat. The Bible says that he was led away, in the, in the King James Version, it uses that language. He was led away, much like the, the scapegoat in the Old Testament, was led away. The sins of the people were symbolically transferred onto the goat, and then the goat was led away into the wilderness, never to be seen again. And friends, when our sins are transferred onto Jesus, they are led away and we will never see them again. But Jesus is also the true and better Passover lamb. Remember in the Old Testament and the Passover, it's no mistake that these events in John chapter 19 are happening during the Passover week. And we're supposed to see that Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb. In the Old Testament, if you put blood over your doorpost on that night of, of the, the angel of death passing through, you would be passed over if you were under the blood. And now in the New Testament, we know that judgment is coming. Death is coming. And the only way to be passed over is to be under the blood of the true and better Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. The Bible is full of pictures. The Old Testament is just a book of shadows that come full in Jesus. And today we see even better. I, I can't, I don't even know if kids use the word stoked anymore, but I am stoked about John 19 today. I mean, I have, as I have been studying John 19, I'm just so excited. My soul has been nourished. I hope that yours will be today as well as we see some more truths about Jesus that, that, that come even more full. Seeing these shadows in the Old Testament is like watching a picture develop in the dark room. It, 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 it gets more and more detail as the moments go by, and we see that today in John 19 as Jesus is seen as the only one 
who can cleanse us from our sins. I don't know if you've ever been around someone who loves to tell the same story over and over. You ever had that experience? You're around someone and, and it's almost like if you can, you can even drop a little trigger and you know that if you say the right things or, or whatever, it will evoke the same story. And, and I, I have some stories that I love to tell over and over again. My dad has stories that he loves to tell over and over again. And sometimes, sorry dad, I know he's probably watching on the live stream, but I, I, sometimes I, I'll just drop a hint just to get him to, to tell the story and then I'll look over and I'll, I'll wink at my brother-in-law or whatever like I did it again. But one thing about very familiar stories is that, you know, after a while, they get kind of old. You can, you can, you can almost recite the story perfectly, verbatim. The story that you once laughed at or responded to with wide eyes grows rote, commonplace. It's, it gets stale. You just find a reason to excuse yourself from the room because I've heard it. I've been there. I know all the details. My fear for me when I approach this passage is that the cross would seem so commonplace. We sing about it every week. You can read through it four times in your Bible reading plan as you, as you go through the Gospels. And for someone like me who grew up in church, maybe I, it's, it's tempting to believe, ah, I know that, I've got it covered. And that turns off a switch in our minds. And my fear is that that would be a temptation for me in my heart. And honestly, as I preach it and teach it, it might be a temptation for you. So I'm just going to ask you, expect God to show you His grandeur again today at the cross. Because the cross is the stage on which He showed how loving and how just and how merciful He is toward undeserving sinners like us. And so because of his goodness, we can expect to hear from him afresh today out of his word. Amen. Let's look in John chapter 19. We're going to read verses 17 through 22. And we'll make our first point. Jesus really was king. Jesus really is king. Both of those are equally true. Jesus really was king. Verses 17 through 22, the Bible says this. This is the word of the Lord. And he went out, or they led him away, the King James probably says, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Let's pray. Lord, the difference um, between how perfect is your word and how sinful is the, the preacher today, that difference is very great. But I pray that 
he would overcome that great chasm once again by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that everything that I would say would be exactly what you would have me to say. And I pray that the word of God, and not my words, would fall on ears that your spirit has prepared to hear and, and so that we might see again just how glorious and worthy you are. Give us this help today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the ways that God shows in John's gospel just how sovereign, how in control he is, is John frequently tells stories of people speaking better than they know. John frequently shows people saying things that are truer than they even realize. It's almost as if God is showing that He is sovereign over the human mind. And He's sovereign over the words of even evil people. Let me give you a couple of examples. Earlier in John chapter 19, the people say, Hail, King of the Jews. And they mean it as an insult. But what they're really doing with their lips, even though their hearts are set on evil, they are giving Jesus the praise that he's due in a weird, twisted way. Here's another example. In John chapter 11, remember when Caiaphas was trying to reason with the people? They were trying to figure out, how are we going to deal with this guy Jesus and his teaching? How are we going to get rid of this problem? And Caiaphas said to the people, he said, you know, it would be better if this one man would die for all the people, instead of that the whole nation would have to perish. In other words, Caiaphas was saying, hey, why don't you just go ahead and kill this Jesus guy so that the rest of us don't have to suffer? What he didn't know is that that was exactly what God had in mind. That Jesus would be put to death so that the rest of the people might go free. There are frequent examples of people speaking better than they know. And in this scene, we see Pilate is putting this inscription above Jesus' head. King of the Jews. Pilate is trying to do this to, to twist the dagger in the, in the backs of the people that have really made life hard on him. You see, the Jews had made life really difficult on Pilate. Pilate didn't want to kill Jesus. He didn't really see what the problem was. But the Jews had made it so politically difficult for him to let Jesus go that Pilate was kind of painted into a corner. And so now Pilate is trying to get back at them. He's like, yeah, I'll crucify your Jesus guy, but I'm going to write a name above his head that's going to make you look foolish since you've made me look so foolish. See, Pilate thinks that he's getting back at the Jews, but what he is really doing is, is declaring what is true of this man that he's crucifying. They're crucifying Jesus. He really is the king. He really is the one who has come to save his people. All of this has a deeper meaning in the Bible. Jesus here is mocked as a fake king. And while it may look that Jesus is weak and it may look as if Jesus is defeated, we know that the end of the story tells that this king is really king. Revelation chapter 19 tells us this. John saw this vision and he said, I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. While Jesus was on the cross, he looked weak. While Jesus was on the cross, he looked defeated. He was treated on the cross like they may have treated enemy kings by killing him and then mocking them. They put a name above his head to mock him. But we see that when this king returns, he will return in full and utter victory. And he will have a name written on him again. And everyone will know who he is. How can we apply this? to our lives, that this king really is king. This king really is in control. We can know that that when God is in control, he is working out all events, even the evil of other people. He is so sovereign, he is so in control that he can work out the evil even of other people toward his good ends. And so you can have confidence that when you are mistreated... When you are wronged, there is something that God is able to do behind the scenes. Christian, you are freed up when, when someone is being when someone is wronging you, you are freed up from responding in a way that says, How can I get my side of the story out? You are freed up from saying, How can I get even? And you are freed to ask and to seek God, how can I find what God is doing, what He is seeking to do in me in this situation? If God was in control at Jesus' darkest moment when His Son was being made to look like He was defeated, He is also in control of your situation. We know this from the story of Joseph in the Old Testament in Genesis. Joseph, after he was sold by his brothers into slavery... After he was mistreated by them and ignored by them and thought for dead, his father thought he was dead. His brothers lied to cover up their sin. His brothers come back and they reconcile and Joseph is able to say to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Let me ask you another question. The second application has a warning and an encouragement. The warning is this. Are you now living as if Jesus really is king? Are you living as if he will return as this rider on the white horse? He will return to judge. He will return with a sword coming out of his mouth. The warning is this. Are you walking in unconfessed or unrepentant sin? What will be the consequence when this king returns? Here's the encouragement. If your hope is in this king, and if your ultimate hope is in his return, don't ever, friend, 
Christian, don't ever lose sight of the fact that every sacrifice you make will be totally worth it when he does return. Amen? Every sacrifice you make will be totally worth it. Every dollar you've given so that a missionary can stay on the field, every secret prayer that you have prayed that no one else knows about, every time that you've lost something socially to gain something spiritually, every hour that you have spent serving the least of these, Jesus remembers every single one of them. And every sacrifice that you have made will be utterly worth it worth it? Did you have to do something really, really hard in order to repent? It will be worth it one day. It's difficult now. You will receive the reward when he returns and you will hear his voice say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Jesus really is king. Do you live as if that is true? Here's the second point that we would like to make today from verses 23 through 28. Jesus really did suffer. Jesus really did suffer. Let's look at verses 23 through 28. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which said, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When, they, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So we see a picture of Jesus up on the cross. And I don't know if you can imagine this. Jesus is up on the cross. And all these things are playing out while they're waiting for him to die. They're dividing his garments. And it's like life is going on down at the foot of the cross. And Jesus' mother is kind of passed off to John. And he begins to care for her. We see the depth of Jesus' suffering. It's, it's almost incredible how John's gospel passes by. John's gospel says, and they crucified him. You can imagine all of the detail and all of the agony that goes into those words, that brief description of what they did. I don't have to remind uh, all of you about uh, exactly what all suffering he, he went through. The physical pain was excruciating. See, the victim of crucifixion would be forced to carry the cross beam, and that's what they did. The, the, the upright post was already in the ground, secured, and so they would make him walk up the hill, and then they would nail him to the cross beam, and then they would kind of, you know, pulley him up or, or lift him up onto the cross. The cross really wasn't that far off the ground, apparently, from what I am able to read. And then maybe you've noticed on these little crosses, there's almost like this little foot pedestal right under your feet. And you think, oh, well, you know, that's you know, maybe a, something to relieve pain there. At least you could kind of prop up. But the reality is that that little, that little foot pedestal is called a sedecula. It was there to increase the agony. Because as you hung on the cross, you would be tempted to fight against the suffocation that, that, that was caused from you drooping on the cross. 
and your, your lungs wouldn't be able to hold air, and so you'd be forced to, to push yourself back up on that little sedecula just so that you could get a breath in. And that, that little pedestal called the sedecula was there only to prolong, to encourage you to fight on. And that's what Jesus endured. Not only that, he endured the mockery of his, his people at his feet, dividing his clothes as if he's nothing but a common criminal. And then he's going through the emotional trial of concern for Mary. All of this physical suffering stands next to Jesus' public scorn and shame. Crucifixions always occurred in public places, and it's almost as if, I don't know this to be the case, but the, the different languages that it was written in is almost like, no matter what your language was, you, you could see how ashamed he was because his name was written in different languages. And I imagine that he was crucified next to a, a roadway. It's very possible, they, they say, because Simon of Cyrene was, happened to be passing by when these things were happening. People could stop and gawk at those who were being punished. I want to ask you to apply this in your heart for a moment. What you are supposed to see and what I am supposed to see is that every labored breath, every drop of blood, every bead of sweat, every sigh of agony and every scoffing voice at the foot of the cross reveals, reveals to us the depth of God's love. Jesus was willing to suffer. He really did suffer. He was a real man with real nerve endings in his body who bled real blood and breathed real air and drank real drink and felt real pain. Charles Spurgeon has a quote I want to read to you. It's lengthy, but I hope that won't be too distracting. He says this about Jesus. Our Lord is the maker of the ocean and the waters that are above the firmament. It is His hand that stays or opens the bottles of heaven. And He sends rain upon the evil and upon the good. The sea is His and He made it. And all the fountains and springs are of his digging. He pours out the streams that run along the hill, the, among the hills, the torrents which rush down the mountains and the flowing rivers which enrich the plains. One would have said if he were thirsty, he would not tell us. For all the clouds and rains would be glad to refresh his brow, and the brooks and the streams would joyously flow at his feet. And yet, though he was Lord of all, he had so fully taken upon himself the form of a servant and was so perfectly made in the likeness of sinful flesh that he cried with a fainting voice, I thirst. How truly man is he. He is indeed bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh for he bears our infirmities. We see this in the last couple of verses, verses 29 through 30, that Jesus said, I thirst. And we, we, we don't even have to wonder why he said this. He said this to remind us that he really was a man. And his suffering was actual and literal. 
Verses 28 through 30 say this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put up a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. These few verses kind of stand on the bridge between the last point and the next point. The last point is that Jesus really did suffer. I don't know if you remember, but in Mark's gospel, they give this little detail that at one point Jesus was offered wine mixed with myrrh, but he, he wouldn't take it. See, that was a sedative. It might ease the pain a little bit, and Jesus refused it. You know why? Because more than easing his pain, Jesus wanted to drink the, to the dregs the wrath of God for us. It meant more to him to endure all the suffering that we deserved than to ease his own pain. But now we see this other picture of him on the cross receiving this sour wine lifted up on a hyssop branch. And Jesus said, it is finished. Now, those three words, it is finished, could be an entire sermon. And if you remember back in Easter, I I highlighted that. So today the emphasis is going to be a little bit different. I want to focus on something that might seem like a passing detail. And this, friends, is so rich. I want to ask you to point your direction, your your attention. I want to ask you to, to, to direct your attention to the hyssop branch. Why would John mention that detail? I mean, after all, let's be honest, he didn't give a ton of detail about the crucifixion. He said, and then they crucified Jesus. But then here, when they lift up this sour wine on a sponge, on top of a branch, they lift it up to him, and it happens to be a hyssop branch. In the Old Testament, hyssop was an image of cleansing. Do you know that in in Leviticus chapter 14, let's say you were a leper. You had the disease of leprosy on your body and you were outside the camp. You were outside the gates of the city. Inside the gates of the city where everything is safe. But you're outside and you want to be allowed back in. You know what had to happen? A priest had to leave the town, had to leave the safety of the town and go out and meet you outside the gate. And that priest had to go through a ritual, Leviticus 14 says. He had to sprinkle you with a hyssop branch for you to be made clean. Now that's interesting, but it gets even better. Remember last week when we talked about how Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb? If you would just put the blood over the doorpost of your home, after eating that Passover meal, your home would be passed over and judgment and death would not come to you, right? But do you remember that little detail about how they put the blood over the doorpost? The Bible says in Exodus that they lifted up a hyssop branch to spread the blood over the doorpost. The hyssop branch had to be lifted up for the people to be saved. And now in the New Testament, a hyssop branch is lifted up 
to the one who is shedding his blood so that the people could be forgiven. In the Old Testament, the hyssop branch had to be lifted up to spread the blood. In the New Testament, the hyssop is lifted up to the one who is shedding his blood. Do you see the connection in this little detail? It connects these Old Testament stories to our situation. Friends, we are the leper outside the city. We are the one who is unclean. And the only hope of us being allowed into the safety of the city is if we are cleansed of our disease. Jesus is the one who cleansed us of our disease. In the Old Testament, you had leprosy. You could be cleansed by the priest one time. In the New Testament, if Jesus cleanses you from your disease, you are clean forever. We are not only the leper, we are the family huddled in our home on the night of the Passover. We know that the angel of death is coming through. The only hope that we have of our home being passed over is if the hyssop branch is lifted up and we are put under the blood. They could be saved for one night. In the New Testament, we see that because the true and better Passover lamb was lifted up, Jesus, and there's this little connection with this hyssop branch, because Jesus was lifted up, we that we're huddled in our home as our family trusting in God, we don't have to be afraid because Jesus paid it all on the cross. And yes, we are the ones that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath We are the ones who should have been whipped. We are the ones who should have been scourged. We are the ones who should have been crucified. And it's a good thing that we didn't say, I'll take Jesus' place because we were not the perfect spotless lamb. The only way our sins could be properly atoned for, the only way our sins could be taken away is through an eternity in hell. That's the only proper payment for our sins. Eternity separated from God because we're not worthy. But Jesus took it on His back so that we could go free. Christ did it. Christ went to the cross. Christ took the scoffing. He took the beating. He took the nails. And most importantly, He did it sinlessly so that we the sinful, could go free. As I close, I just want to ask you this question. To the wandering, wayward Christian, doesn't this picture of Christ's love for you make you want to turn around and come back? Doesn't it make you want to repent of your waywardness? To the skeptic, wouldn't it be great if this were true? Wouldn't it be great if the Old Testament is not just a collection of really archaic stories that tell a picture of a really different kind of God who's mean and cruel? Wouldn't it be awesome? Wouldn't it be really incredible if the Old Testament God is the same as the New Testament God? And the Old Testament gives us these pictures of lepers outside the gate and and families huddled in their homes need to be passed over from their sins and they all come true in Jesus. Wouldn't that be awesome? if Jesus really did everything that we needed to go free? To the struggler, the one who comes in, maybe limping into church today, 
while no 35-minute sermon can fix all of whatever is going on in your life, isn't it comforting to know that your Savior is not just some aloof deity off somewhere in the heavens? That He actually suffered for you and is willing to walk with you in your suffering right now? I hope that brings a little bit of comfort. And lastly, to the one who's on the fence to the one who has not yet surrendered your, your life to Jesus, don't you see that even though you were outside the gate, even though I, we, were outside the gate, Jesus did everything necessary to bring us in and that he stands today to invite you to come into his safety and to come into his family? Isn't that a sweet message? What would prevent you from coming? Let's pray together.